All right. Well, if you all will turn to the book of First John. Book of First John, it's near the end of um, your Bible, right after um, Peter, uh, First and Second Peter. So we're in First John, and we'll be here for a while, uh, probably until I go on sabbatical uh, at this point. So we'll be in here for a, a number of months, and Easter and things like that coming in there. So, uh, but First John, I'm just going to read the first four verses this morning, uh, and we'll deal with that, and then we'll continue on. But I, I do encourage you to be reading through this letter. Uh, it doesn't take that long to read through it. Um, it is a wonderful letter, and I'm looking forward to digging in. So uh, turn your ears and your hearts to the reading of God's Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Grass withers, flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this Word, we know that we need you to open our eyes and our hearts. We need your Spirit to be at work, so I pray that he would be at work mightily in our hearts. Even as we introduce this, this letter, oh Lord, there's still so much here. And so pray that you give me clarity of speech um, in all that I say. Uh, may it be words that glorify you and edify your people. And so, Lord, turn our hearts to you. We pray these things for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. So some, some of you might be readers, and, and I would ask you this, you know, how would you, just kind of think about this, how would you explain to someone or introduce to someone the most recent book you read? So the most recent book, you know, maybe, maybe you could do it very easily, maybe the plot was clear and it, and it flowed quite well, it was well written, maybe it was a novel and just very well written, it might have had some plot twists and turns, but it just really progressed quite well throughout. Or perhaps for some of you, the most recent book you read was one that 90% of us would have no idea what it was talking about. It was a technical work in your field of study or your vocation, and, and no one would have any idea what you're talking about. The reality is is some books are easier to explain and introduce than others. Some books flow well and are organized very meticulously, very neatly. Others, not so much. First John falls somewhere, I think, between those. It's not altogether a difficult book to understand or to follow. As you read through it, you can pick up what John is saying, but it, doesn't, it really doesn't have a very clear outline because of the way the author presents the material I actually like the way, as I was studying uh, John Calvin in his introduction to this book and his commentary, he wrote this. He said, This epistle is altogether worthy of the spirit of that disciple who, above others, was loved by Christ, that he might exhibit him as a friend to us. But it contains doctrines mixed with exhortations, for he speaks of the eternal deity of Christ and at the same time of the incomparable grace which he brought with him when he appeared in the world, and generally of all his blessings, and he especially commends and extols the inestimable grace of divine adoption. 
on these truths, he grounds his exhortations, and at one time, he admonishes us in general to lead a pious and holy life, and at another, he expressly enjoins love, but he does none of these things in a regular order for everywhere. He mixes teaching with exhortation. That's really how this book reads in many ways. I, I think what Calvin said is a, is a pretty apt introduction. The book is full of so much. It's, it's, it's a wonderful book, but it's just not very systematic in its approach. It's not very um, perfectly organized. The author will come back to various points at various times and, and mix in different ideas. I think he does this because he's a pastor with a heart for people and as he's thinking through it, he, he comes up with more. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, it all just kind of comes in there, and it, and it builds, and it does a great job. But he, he longed for them to know truth, to know life, to live in light of that truth and display it clearly. And so, like I said, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wrote from his heart. And sometimes, well, that was a little bit out of order, uh, uh, not the, the most perfectly outlined. Uh, personally, I am excited about this book. Uh, I'm really looking forward to studying it. And so this morning, I just want to quickly introduce it with some background information, uh, some prefatory remarks. You'll see this fancy word on the outline, prolegomena. It just means prefatory remarks. And uh, then we'll deal with the first four verses of the letter. And as we do so, what I, what I hope happens this morning in many ways is just simply that your appetites will grow your appetites for reading and studying and meditating, not only in this letter, but on God's Word as a whole, will grow and that you will you, you gain awe and wonder at our God. So let's, let's start with some background, and I, I think I can do this fairly quickly. First, the author. So though it's, the author is nowhere explicitly identified, the consensus is that John, the son of Zebedee, the apostle and beloved disciple, and the author of the Gospel of John is the author. Some of those reasons that are, I think, very strong and compelling are there's very similar vocabulary, very similar themes between this and the gospel. Ideas like light and darkness. Um, you see that in John 1 and 1 John 1. Life and death, love and hate. Jesus as the Word. We'll, get, we'll see that this morning. Or abiding in Christ and, and, and other things. So there's a lot of similarities between the works. Second, the date. When was this letter written? Well, believing that John is the author of this and believing that he wrote this letter after he wrote the gospel, um, our best estimate is sometime between 85 and the early 90s AD as the time of writing. So, uh, within that first century. Third, uh, this word provenance, that is, from where was it written? Where was the place that he was when he wrote the letter? A lot of times we wonder about Paul, like, well, he wrote from a, did he write from a Roman jail or was he in a Philippian jail or a, <laughs> an Ephesian jail, things like that. So it's where it was written from. And the evidence is very strong that he wrote from Ephesus, that during the Jewish war uh, it, between 66 and 70 AD, that John moved to Ephesus and there's also strong um, evidence that he died in Ephesus. So we believe that it was written from the city of Ephesus. Fourth, to whom was this letter written? So there's no addressee in this letter. It doesn't start off with, uh, to the saints and faithful who are at Colossae, like many of Paul's letters. It does not begin like a typical Greco-Roman letter. There, there is none of that. Um, it's probably best then, I think, and this kind of leans to genre as well, is that this is a circular letter. 
It was sent throughout the region, and when it went place to place, it was highly probable that the courier who was taking the letter gave personal greetings from John to the, the church in which the letter was given. Um, so there was no need for the personal in this because it was meant very much so to be circular. Next, the structure. As I said before, there's not a very clear one. Um, it's a letter, okay? It's a, it's a letter. Uh, it tends to revisit ideas fairly often, but when it does do that, John doesn't simply go back and exactly repeat what he said before. He actually adds to and amplifies what he had already talked about that he begins to revisit. So he adds points to those aspects. Next question is, why was this letter written? You know, the hard thing with New Testament letters is we don't have the communication that prompted the person to write it. We don't have a letter from Colossae or from Ephesus for Paul or from Corinth. We don't have those things, so we have to deduce from the letter itself. And I think we're going to see some various reasons throughout the letter, but I, I do think that the overarching reason why John wrote this letter was to shore up the, the recipient's belief, to give them assurance and confidence, and to warn them against false teachers. So to give them confidence, to shore up their belief, and to warn them against false teachers. And these teachers were those who were very actively, you can see it in, in chapter 2, verse 26, they were seeking to deceive the people to whom John was writing. They were seeking to deceive. So this naturally leads us to wonder, well, who were these opponents? Who were these people that John is writing in response to, writing for, for his people to, to be on their guard against? What were they teaching? And again, it's hard to know exactly who they were. Were they Gnostics? Were they Marcionites? Were they Docetists? And don't worry that you might not know what any of those words mean. We'll get to those in due time. But the question is, what were they teaching? Because it sure seemed that they denied that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, their, their overall Christology, so their doctrine of who Christ was, was aberrant. It was off. It was not orthodox. They also seemed to deny the extent and influence of sin in their lives. You know, we'll see this in a, probably next week where he says, you know, if we claim to have no sin, we deceive ourselves. They, they apparently are claiming that, that, that sin does not have the same effect in some way. Along with that, they really weren't the greatest at showing love to believers. Okay, so there's various things, and we'll get into more of it as we get to those specific texts. And there are other issues that I could discuss, but I think these set the, the stage, kind of give us a, a framework, a trellis, of, of, so to speak, on which to work as we look through this book. Um, for now, let's move in to the text itself. So let's reread these first two verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So here's the start of this circular letter. You can, you can see again, the, the reinforcing, there's, there's no greeting, there's no salutation, there's, there's no addressee. Uh, and it, it doesn't feel like one of Paul's, it feels more like what I read earlier um, for the call to worship from Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. 
uh, as it starts long ago at many times and in many places, you know, God spoke to us through His Son. Um, and so it, it just starts off in that. So rather than, than, than start with what can appear like formalities, I'm not saying that Paul's beginning of his letters were formalities because they, they were rich, but he just jumps right into the meat of it. He just jumps right in to the heart of what he wants to say. And he does so here with a string of relative clauses. And you see that, don't you? Which, 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 which. Okay, there's this string. And then those clauses point to concerning the word of life. And actually, the the main verb of all of this doesn't show up until verse 3. The main verb is proclaim in all of this. Okay, so it's all these relative clauses concerning the word of life. Proclaim later, okay, and we'll get to that. Now, with that, though, I think when, when you read this, most modern readers are drawn in by the similarity that they see with John's gospel, with the start of John's gospel. So, the start of John's gospel is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So, you hear that idea of beginning, in the beginning, and, and that's important in both the gospel and here. And in the gospel of John, it is unambiguously pointing to the eternal, the pre-existing nature of the logos, of the word of, of Jesus. Now, here in the letter, it's similar, but there's some debate and uh, a little bit of a lack of clarity in the way John writes here as to what he's referring to specifically. One commentator, I think he summed up the options well. He said, the way, quote, from the beginning is used in 1-1, could speak of the event of the incarnation, or Jesus' ministry after His baptism, or the apostolic proclamation of His teachings, the absolute beginning of the universe, or the time before creation when Jesus was the pre-incarnate Logos. So, is there ambiguity? Yeah, there's, there's some here. But personally, I think John is essentially stating the same thing as he wrote in his gospel that this word of life, namely Jesus Christ, existed before the incarnation. John is pointing to the preexistence of Jesus, to the preexistence of the Christ. Now, with that being the case, then, why did he start with that which was from the beginning? Why not start with Jesus Christ who was from the beginning? That seems to make more sense when you think about it. Why start with that which instead of Jesus Christ who was from the beginning? Well, I think this is where some of the ambiguity is actually purposeful. Okay, I think it's actually purposeful on his part. Using that instead of who gives us a broader application so that the, 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 the that which he's talking about, which was from the beginning, not, it, it includes not only Jesus himself, but the message of about Jesus. So it's not only the the word of life himself, but the word that brings life. So it encompasses both aspects. And so then when you come to these these clauses and you think about this pre-existing word of life, the weight of John, what John writes, you, you begin to feel more and more. He says, which we have heard. So this word of life that's pre-existent, which we have heard. Now, this could simply mean that the message about Jesus was heard, that they heard the message, but I think more accurately, it means that he heard the message of it from Jesus himself. That Jesus himself, the the very word of life, the preexistence one, in the flesh, spoke to John directly. 
He and the apostles, the other eyewitnesses, heard from Jesus. I think this is confirmed in verse 5, where he writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. And then he writes, Which we have seen with our eyes. Very clearly, he's stating that he's an eyewitness. And, and this is maybe a good time to address why, why does he keep using we over and over again? The first person plural is used a great deal in the beginning of this letter, and I believe what John is doing is something along these lines, where he's saying, we, the apostles, uh, as opposed to you, even, um, uh, or, or even though you haven't, we have seen the Lord of life, we have seen Jesus. It's not disparaging of the recipients, but it's distinguishing, it's dissociative of uh, the apostles and the eyewitnesses from those who heard the message only. Now, there's not a difference in the ability for salvation in that, but he's just saying, we have done this. We've actually, I, I have seen this preexistent Christ in the flesh. I've heard him. And further, he says, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Here you can even see this. He's adding to a little bit because he just said, we've seen with our eyes and we've looked upon. He's saying the same thing, just pushing it. That verb looked upon is very clearly throughout the New Testament, a physical scene with the eyes. There's no way that somebody could say, well, he just kind of saw it in his mind's eye. No, this is a physical scene. He beheld Christ. This makes me think of the end of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 24, starting in verse 35. As they, the, the disciples, were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? Now listen, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. The resurrected Christ ate fish, and they touched him. They saw him. They physically touched Jesus. So these are these, these clauses that we see in this letter and the first, that which was from the beginning, is obviously prior to the other clauses. It just makes sense. It, the, the first is that Jesus is from eternity, but this one who's from eternity, who's with the Father in the beginning when all things were created, has been seen and heard and touched. He's real, it's historical. They lived with him. They were with him in real time and space and history. And so then we come to that phrase, concerning the word of life. So what was said about this word of life? Well, all of this is, is a very clear statement of a high Christology, a high doctrine of Christ. The eternally preexisting one, the, the fully divine Son, came into the world. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as, the, uh, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the definitive revelation of God. 
Another commentator said, he's the voice, image, and embodiment of God. Through him, God is made audible. We read that in Hebrews 1. Visible, he's the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15, and touchable, we've seen that. And through him, we are given life, even eternal life. Folks, listen, that's just verse 1. That's one verse in this letter. Let's go on to verse 2 then, where John tells us that this life was made manifest. We've seen it, testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, you can see this. In many ways, he restates, maybe clarifies, makes explicit what we had to work at a little bit to get to in verse 1. The life was made manifest. It was revealed. And God, the, 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 the tense of that verb makes it very clear. And to make manifest is that God was the one who initiated, who sent the Son and revealed the word of life. Paul referred to an early uh, probably Christian hymn or Christian confession in 1 Timothy 3.16 where he said, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So John is testifying and proclaiming Jesus the eternal life. Folks, this is not something impersonal. It's the Word of life, the Son of God Himself who was with the Father prior to the Incarnation. It is in Him that one finds eternal life. It is in Him that there is eternal life. Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 3. This was part of His prayer. He said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. Eternal life is Jesus and at this point, you can start to see some of what motivated and pushed John to write this letter. I, I know I mentioned it earlier in the purpose, and, and very clearly and early on, you can see that he's concerned about what other people are teaching about Jesus. And he's saying, hey, I was there. <laughs> I've seen and touched him. You can listen to me. Follow what I'm saying. Stay in line with the truth. He's, he's stressing this physical manifestation of Jesus uh, against these false teachers, against the heretics. John Stott wrote, He who is from the beginning is he whom the apostles heard, saw, and touched. It's impossible to distinguish between Jesus and the Christ, the historical and the eternal. They are the same person who is both God and man. Such an emphasis on the historical revelation of the invisible and intangible is still needed today. Some people in our world today have this search for the historical Jesus, and they try and separate Jesus from the Christ. We cannot do that. They are one and the same. The historical Jesus who walked the earth is the Christ, is the Savior of the world, is the Creator. Christianity is not some subjective experience. It's real. It's objective. It's historical. Folks, we're not mystics. We are people grounded in history, in reality. There is an empty tomb. Jesus did walk this earth. God took on flesh to save his people from their sins. John and others perceived, they recognized, they experienced they, they themselves the real person of Jesus, who was God and man. And, and we do too in many ways through the work of the Spirit in our lives. Truly, we, we experience Jesus that's truly God and truly man. 
And, and for them, having experienced that truth, that, that life incarnate, well, then there were other things that followed from that. So it's not just that they perceived, but the next thing is they proclaimed. They proclaimed. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. And again, and I feel like I'm saying again a few times here, but you see the repetition. You see him continue to say the same things. This main verb here, proclaim. John has been making very strong assertions throughout this beginning. Statements of fact so that it is clear that what he proclaims, it's not false, it's not new, it's, it's not some novelty. It's what he has seen, had heard, what was from the beginning. And then here we have two statements, two purpose statements, two so that statements. So when you see so that in Scripture, you want to go, okay, this is, this is giving us a purpose for what he's doing, so that these things might result. And the first one is, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, you may have thought this as you read through this, because just kind of the way I think we tend to think, but why does he say fellowship rather than say, so that you too may have salvation along with us? Why say, so that you may have fellowship? Well, I, maybe it's because of, there was severing of fellowship with the false teachers. That could be some of it, but I, but I, but I think there's a bigger picture Fellowship is not separate from salvation. You are not saved to be a lone ranger, to be on an island. You are saved into the body of Christ. Salvation includes reconciliation and fellowship to God and Christ. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and also incorporation into the life of one another, into the church. We proclaim also to you so that you may be with us, so that you may have fellowship with us. Again, John 17, Jesus prayed for this fellowship. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Excuse me. Folks, John proclaims the truth so that his hearers may believe that truth and therefore have fellowship with God, have true fellowship with him and, and with those who believe in the true revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And I do think part of what this is telling us, doctrine's important, particularly good doctrine. <laughs> Everybody has a doctrine, just some of them are really bad. Like, we're all theologians, just some of us are better than others, okay? So good doctrine, solid, solid orthodox truth is important. Mm -hmm. 
And because from this true understanding then comes true living, which this letter is going to work out, walking in the light, walking in truth, loving your brother and sister. But John is laying out from the very beginning, it is important to know the truth, to not be aberrant, particularly in how you view the Savior and what you believe about the Christ. Then we come to the second purpose. He says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And again, John throws us for a little bit of a loop in how he phrases things. This is not naturally what flows. Even as I was reading this to us earlier, I had to consciously not say, and we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. He says, so that our joy may be complete. But, But... wouldn't John want your, your joy, the, the joy of his recipients? And if not, doesn't what he's writing sound just a wee bit selfish? Like, gee, John, thanks, we can help you out there, buddy. And, you know, it does sound a bit odd at first, but I absolutely understand it, and I'm 100% positive every single parent understands it too. How can you have full and complete joy if those you deeply care about and have some sense of responsibility and care for, how can you have full joy if they are being deceived and believing falsehood? If they're in danger of walking off the narrow and straight path, the good path of belief in the true and risen Christ. Listen to his sentiment in, in his two shorter letters, in, in 2nd and 3rd John, in both verse 4 of those letters. In 2nd John, he says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. He rejoiced because they were walking in truth. And then 3rd John 4, I have no greater joy. Okay, listen to that. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in in the truth. It is painful for a parent or a pastor to see people they love and care about walk away from the truth. And it gives utter joy to see them turn back. There's greater joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 who don't need it. What a tremendous joy. How it does the heart good to know that your children, your your flock that God has given you charge of, are walking in truth. That's why he writes, so that our joy. And, And I think when he says our there, he's almost doing this royal our as all of us who are in Christ We rejoice when others, and our joy is made more complete when others are walking with Christ in truth. This is John's heart, folks. He wants them to have fellowship, to have true fellowship with the Father and with other believers. And he shares with them that that, that it does his heart good for them not only to believe that truth, but we'll see as we go throughout the letter to live in light of that truth. He's protecting them. 
By writing this letter, he's seeking to protect them from, from going astray. And folks, there's just as much, if not more, today that is thrown in our faces that tries to pull us astray. And it's hard when as a pastor, I hope this sounds, that I have you for an hour a week and you're discipled by the world for the rest. If your TV is constantly spouting other messages at you, it is hard to counteract that in one hour a week. Especially if you're not pursuing Christ throughout that week personally. Folks, this stuff matters. Maybe I could throw this out. If you won't do it for yourself, do it for me. Do it for the other believers in this room. Make their joy complete. Make my joy complete. Tune out the other noise. Tune out the false messages. Don't participate in their wickedness. Paul, or John will talk about that later. I've done enough on Paul. That's going to happen a lot. But John will talk about that later. So again, folks, I hope that this spurs you on in your study and meditation, not only of this beautiful letter, but of Scripture. That you'll walk in the truth. Because this is just a taste of John's heart. It's just a taste of what he's going to deal with in this letter. We will see our Savior exalted. We will have our lives called to holiness and love and so much more. We'll see the importance of good doctrine, but not just believing it, but walking it, living in light of it. So, folks, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice together in our Lord. Let us rejoice in each other as we walk in the truth, in the word of life, in, in the foundation of all of this, the one that the disciples saw and touched and heard and of the message that we have heard and believed in Him through that message. Let's rejoice in the foundation of the church, the foundation of our life. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that You would truly pour out Your Spirit upon us. Help us to rest in You, to meditate upon your truth, your goodness, your grace, your mercy, to believe what is good and true and beautiful and to walk in that truth. Lord, we thank you for this letter and so look forward to dealing with it more and more as we press on. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.